This week's sponsor is HiPath, two-in-one luggage. If you dream about traveling the world with carry-on only, go to Amazon and type in H-Y-P-A-T-H to check out their unique design and use coupon code JohnnyFD for 10% off. That's H-Y-P-A-T-H on Amazon. Welcome to the Travel Like a Boss podcast, where we interview location-independent entrepreneurs that travel the world like a boss by being their own boss. Here's your host, Johnny FD. Hey, so guys, it's Johnny, and welcome to episode 207 of the Travel Like a Boss podcast. I am back in Chiang Mai, Thailand, and I am with Howard from LA, California. Yo, what's going on, dude? Dude, it's good to have you here. It's good to reminisce and talk about uh, life back in LA. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's, it's been fun. So do you want to just briefly kind of talk about who you... Yeah, I guess... Actually, you know what? Let's talk about how we met. I think that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. We had a friendship before uh, before you realized it, Johnny. I have been you know, following Johnny FD on YouTube and uh, he was kind of like one of the bigger inspirations for us actually moving to Thailand. So... I think he's one of the ones, one of the first people to open up this whole kind of world to us. So I, I was following him and a few other vloggers and ended up making my way down here and, uh, was on YouTube one day and his feed popped up and it was, you know, my new apartment in Chiang Mai. And, uh, so I sent him a text. It's like, yo, Johnny, you don't know who I am, but we've been friends for a while and, uh, you want to come kick it and hang out. So, uh, he sent me a text. It was like, yeah, come down to this uh, meetup. And so I did and he was there. Say what's up, and that's pretty much it. Yeah, I think it was a Instagram DM, right? Well, I don't remember. Was it a or was it a no. Facebook message? Uh, it, was, it was a Facebook message. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I yeah I, I really like Facebook messages because then I can kind of see if the person is kind of like a normal person. If <laughs> I'm a creeper. <laughs> yeah. Seriously, I'll be like, okay, like you know, do, do they have a profile photo? If not, like, or if it's some weird, you know, like sunsets. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, okay, do they have a normal profile photo? Do they have like a normal name? Do they have just like, you know, some normal activity on yeah. Facebook? I, I figured that, I figured that yeah. that would be the case. Yeah. Do they have friends? Yeah, yeah. I don't yeah. really have that many friends. You know. But I was like, okay, this is a normal guy. He has a girlfriend. He's like, you know, like we probably have something in common because we're both from Southern California. I think okay, here's kind of my, my, I don't want to say my requirements, but kind of just what I look for before I meet people up. First, I'm like, okay, are they like a normal person with a, with a photo and a normal name? Second, do they have any like big red flags that would they'd be like weird, right? Or like a, you know, socially awkward creeper, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then third, it's like, is there anything that we would have in common? Because there's a lot, I'm sure there's a lot of like nice people out there, but if I have nothing in common with them, it's just awkward to like yeah. meet up and hang out. Yeah. So I'm, I'm glad you gave us that list. So now we know how to bypass your, how to hack it, <laughs> how, to ha- how to hack your list. <laughs> yeah. I guess you can start like liking the same Facebook pages as me. <laughs> Change your location to like say San Francisco or California. That's right. I'm creating a Facebook profile as we speak. Yeah. Pretend like have a pretend girlfriend. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, so it was cool hanging out and then it was really interesting because, you know, we both, you know, lived in LA, both yep. Asian Americans. We have some like mutual friends and yep. mutual enemies. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And just like, I mean, a lot of it is not even just the people, just like the enemies as in like cost of living in LA. Yeah. Other kind of BS. Seriously. Yeah. So that's why I want to have you on the show is just to kind of like talk about some of the, some of the things that someone who is just starting this lifestyle, just moving out, goes through. Because how long have you been here in Thailand now? Uh, we've been here for f- about 
three weeks, maybe f- almost four weeks now. Okay. Yeah. And what were you doing before? Can you kind of just briefly go over your life back back in LA? Yeah, um, um, I had an import export business, and I still do, um, and do some real estate investing, and you know, just kind of like a lifetime entrepreneur. I had a job when I was like sixteen, um, and I worked for Circuit City. Yeah, oh, so nice. I worked yeah. for Best Buy. <laughs> and actually, I worked for crazy. I worked for good, uh, good guys when I was six. When I was like okay. seventeen or eighteen. All right, were you doing like a like the car the car installs and no, stuff? No, I wish uh, that sounds more fun. I was. My first job was sales in PE, which is personal electronics. They actually closed that department and they basically said to all of us, we have to let half of you go or you can work in the stock room. And I really didn't want to work in the stock room. So I said, like, look, if you have to let me go, let me go. But what happened was the people that committed to move in the stock room, they had to take off the suit, you know, take off the shirt and tie, put on the black uh, good guys t-shirt take a pay cut, work in the stock room. Ugh. Everyone else, I think one person might have got just fired because they sucked. Everyone else, they actually promoted us. So that was my first time just kind of gambling career-wise and realizing okay. sometimes you know you have to go after what you want. That's interesting. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So um, yeah, we worked at Circuit City for a while and then um, that's more or less it, man. I, I stopped when I was around 17, maybe 18 years old and then... Uh, I've just been running like businesses ever since, you know, just being like this kind of solo one man band or, you know, really small business owner. So that's pretty much where I'm at. So how did you learn that? I mean, you, you started pretty young age. Yeah. Yeah. I started when I was like 16. I was actually doing it as a side hustle to Circuit City because I was still in high school. So back in the day, it was just, you know, you want to hustle money for paying for wheels and cars and body kits and car stereos and so that's what we were kind of doing, yeah. saving up for college and eating out with friends. Just the t- typical teenage stuff, you know? What, what car did you have at the time? I had a 94 Honda Accord. That was, my, <laughs> that was my baby, man. I love that. I still love that thing to this day. I ended up selling that car for inventory. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. At, at that's some dedication, point. though, right? Yeah, yeah, it was. I, I tore that thing to bits. So you had, was it riced out? It was riced out. It was, you know, had a gritty exhaust, racing heart C2s, had a body kit and all that stuff. It had like, um, you know, like Pioneer stereo, all that stuff. And, um, I started slaying in wheels and I ended up like tearing out the interior to fit more wheels on the car. Like literally I took the back seats out, the door panels out, everything. It basically turned into like, I don't know, like a quarter mile car. Like it was just like a car seat and, you know, a steering wheel and an all metal body. And I did that so I could fit, you know, you know, aftermarket wheels and wheels and tires on the car. I basically turned into a truck, and so it was a uh, it was a pretty unpleasant experience. And once I essentially beat that Honda to death, I um I traded it in for more inventory. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say like, have you never heard of a pickup truck? I mean, that's what most people hey, man, you poor dude, in. you poor kid. That's what you got to work with. So I had to make it work, man. You had to make it work. So I think in two hundred and six episodes, I never talked about my ricer phase. I had a. Toyota Celica. Okay. It was, uh, I think it was, I want to say 2000 and, man, I can't remember anymore, but it, okay. w- it wasn't the, the newer body style. It was the older one, maybe like a 2007 or something. Okay. And it was, luckily it was stick shift. So at least I had that. That's cool. Yeah. It was the base model ST. And what I did was I had, I don't know, I don't know what kind of rims they were, but some kind of aftermarket rims. I remember the size of their 215, maybe 4517s. Okay. I mean, how long? What is this? Like two thousand? Yeah, those were like those were big wheels back. Like two thousand, like twenties so. were like 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 the jam, man. Twenties were like crazy, you know. I had a 
the the car was originally red, and then I did a black paint. I I painted it black with a red pearl. I shaved off the wings, shaved off the badges. Nice. You know, I redid the interior to be like pleather. Okay. Put in um, carbon fiber dash. Do you shave the door handles? No, I didn't. Okay. I wanted to. But right. You got I the moldings though, right? You shaved the moldings. Uh, I just shaved. I only shaved off the front and the back. Um, I basically I filled in the the emblems. Okay. I shaved off the emblems, All and right. that way it just looked clean. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I in the I had I don't know what kind of amp I had. I think a Rockford Fosgate amp. Okay, I remember I had those. A twelve inch JL sub. Okay. Subwoofer for you guys who aren't <laughs> audio nerds. <laughs> Um, I had a cap- one ferret capacitor in there. Yeah. Okay. Nice. I had, like, yeah, I had you uh-huh. know new tweeters. I had like I had a lot of money in this car. Yeah. And it's stupid because uh, first off, I didn't have any money. I would use like <laughs> I actually use student loan money to pay for all of this. <laughs> and then second, I only did it because I thought it would get me girls. I, I really did. That. I mean, I, I mean, would, isn't that why any guy does anything on earth? It's embarrassing to say, but it really was. And, and I don't think girls actually cared at all. And I think most girls listen to this podcast are like, I don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> you see that, ladies? How much work we go through? Yeah. So it's rough. that was my my car stage. So just kind of reminiscing with you and just talking about you know the car stuff, kind of re- reminded me of the mindset that. I was in when I was living in Southern California. And yeah. I think a lot of people are still in now yeah. where they take all their money, all their savings, all their time, put it towards fixing stuff. up a car or stuff. Uh-huh. And they say, I don't have time or money to travel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't – I mean, especially living in LA. Especially living in LA, it's real tempting to kind of, you know – get caught up in that cycle and we're all in it. You know, I, you know, I still like my stuff too and it, it, it is stupid, right? Like – you know, there's no need to have, you know, a Rolex when you can have a Casio. It does actually the Casio is better because easier to read and it it's waterproof. You know, and it, it tells time and does everything you need. Really, there's no reason for a lot of that stuff. Um, so yes, it is kind of you just spend your life working to afford to buy these things to lose your wealth and then to start over and do it again. Luckily, I you know my uncle mentored me from a really early age, and so. Um, you know, he was a self-made businessman too. And so it kind of taught me about the value of compounding and the stock market and stuff. And so, you know, even though I, I did fall into it, um, it wasn't maybe not as bad as a lot of others. You know, I had this sort of exposure, I had this sort of understanding that money can compound and compound interest is the most powerful thing in the universe. And so I did, I did have some modicum of understanding from a very early age. And so that's kind of, you know, what I did. I started, you know, slanging, worked at Circuit City, did a side business and it got bigger and bigger and, you know, changed to another business, got bigger and bigger, got a warehouse and moved warehouses, got into real estate. So, you know, I did kind of, you know, at at the same time, a big thing is, it's just to not spend money, right? And save, save your wealth because, you know, one dollar becomes, you know, a dollar ten cents and a dollar cents and ten cents compounds a dollar twenty cents. And, you know, it, it, and especially when the numbers get bigger and bigger, they begin to move much more quickly. So did you ever, did you ever go to college or anything? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I ended up, uh, you know, I, I had a, a, a business when I was 16 and then 18 and then I went to JC cause, like I, I grew up pretty poor, which and, is junior college, like yeah, community college. Yeah, I went to Pierce College, which is in the Valley, and um, I had to pay for all that myself. And then I went to UC Irvine, and I had a business out there, and I had a warehouse 
uh, in uh, in Costa Mesa, which is nearby, and I was running a different business by then. Um, yeah, and I put myself through UCI too, and so it's just oh wow, kind- so you put yourself through college? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, I didn't really. I didn't come from a rich family, you know. My parents were divorced, and so you know, you just kind of just do what you can. And I grew up single mother, immigrant parents, and uh, so you know, money was always tight. And it did. I remember just even being a little kid, being really pissed off because I was really frustrated, right? Like to just not have anything. It was really frustrating. It was. I remember my mom used to tell me that she used to. She had to train me when I was a little kid to when I go to Toys R Us not to throw like a shit fit. Like she's like, "We'll go in here, but you can't cry and you can't be upset." This and that. And I remember being a kid, hearing my parents argue about money and stuff, yeah. and being like, "I'm really fed up with the the grasp that poverty has on my life." You know, or not having money. So. Yeah, I grew up kind of, I guess kind of similar, but the the weird thing about me was I don't remember ever asking for anything. Like I wouldn't ask for much because I think I would hear my parents fight about money. About money. So just from like a really early age, I just never asked for anything. Yeah. I, I just didn't want, because I, I think what would happen is they would, all, they would always say yes because my mom is just the Guilt. type, you know? Yeah. And also she like, she wants to say face. Yeah. So especially if I said it in public. She would never say, "Oh, we can't afford it." Right? You know? She would want. She would buy it, and then afterwards, my parents are going to fight about how they can't afford it mm. behind closed doors. Mm. You know, which are thin doors. And <laughs> as a kid, you're like, "Oh man, like I shouldn't have asked this Lego because you know it's not worth it." Yeah. So I never asked for anything as a kid growing up. Yeah, yeah. That's that's pretty rough, man. I mean, that that'll grow you up real quick. You know, yeah. it's, it's a shitty way to kind of do it, but I think it's a, it's like how 90% of the population lives, right? So a lot of people grew up with that sort of same story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I remember like, even when I went to college, I went to UC Irvine as well, which is funny because I think we went at the same time yep. and, and we had you know, mutual friends and yep. I, we never met, yep. which is crazy. Yep. Yep. But I remember having a couple jobs like at any given time there. I was, I think I... When I was at UC Irvine, I was working at Best Buy. I was also a Valley Parker. And I think at some point I might have had a third job or something, but I don't remember what it was now. Um, oh, I used to, oh no, I used to, I used to be a note taker for one of my classes, actually. Like, used to pay me work, for it. work for like a rich kid <laughs> that would pay you to go to class for him and <laughs> take notes for him. <laughs> I wish I could say that. No, actually what it was was, uh, I was one of the first people taking notes on a digitized device. This was actually before laptops were, were common or popular. I had a Palm Pilot okay. and, and a foldable keyboard. I used to sell those. <laughs> and I used to take notes on it. And I remember one time my um, my professor came up to me after class and he said, hey, can I talk to you? I, he's like, I see you you know, taking notes. I was like, oh, man, is I'm going to get in trouble for this? Yeah. And he's like, um, he's like, hey, can you give me a copy of those notes? And I was like, uh, yeah, sure. Why? And he said, oh, because I don't remember what I talked about all semester. <laughs> He's like, I, I don't want to test you guys on anything that I didn't mention. So I figured if it's in your notes, then, you know, it's fair game. Yeah. So I said, sure, I gave it to him. Ace that test, right? Because it just is off my notes. Off your notes. So I started selling my notes to other students saying, hey, I guarantee you an A. Wow. Nice. Actually, it's funny. Actually, now you mentioned that in, in high school, me and a friend tried to set a website up called thelazystudent.com. And it was like, um, it was basically like Cliff Notes for, uh, like, you know, high school literature that you had to read. It was kind of the same thing. We would like write these summaries because we would, we never really read those books anyways. We're always about the Cliff Notes. So. That's great. Yeah. So do you think this entrepreneur kind of gene was always in you or how, how do you think it cultivated? 
I don't know, man. I mean, I don't know. You know, I just, you know, I, I just never really liked authority and I was always kind of like a bad kid. And I don't know. It just kind of, it worked out that way, but a lot of it didn't make sense to me. And it was really terrifying. I remember like when I, you know, I remember, you know, running my business and then finishing college and then coming home and like cooking up with my friends back at home and everyone's like waking up at nine and going to work or waking up at, you know, seven going to work. And I woke up, wake up at like 10. I had like really loose hours. Like there's no structure. And it was just really weird. And I remember thinking like, am I doing this wrong? And I remember like running my numbers. Like, am I like making enough, like something's not right here. It just felt really weird. So, you know, I had the advantage of having some experience by then, but it was still weird because how old were you at this time? You know, it's like maybe 24 or 23. Okay. And so or, like this was, Everyone had like, a, you know, their first corporate job. Yeah. People were, you know, getting out of college, yeah. right? And like coming home and then waking up and, you know, hanging out with my friends, getting Starbucks afterwards, hearing them bitch and moan about the office work yeah. and stuff. And like, I would just be in my PJs all day or whatever, or yeah. I'd be working till one in the morning, however it had to be. And my lifestyle was real, real different. And even though I knew I was making more money than them, I still like, like for months would go through the numbers over and over again. Like what? Like, it just felt weird. You How know? much were you making at the time? I don't remember. Um, it, it's really hard to say because, you know, for, I have an inventory based business, right? So, you know, if you made like a hundred grand and you bought like, you know, $50,000 worth of inventory and it took three years to sell, it's just hard than the numbers. And then you bought another container, okay. another, you know, more inventory. So even to this day, the numbers have always been hard because like, what do you, what do you count as real money versus money that's paid? That's an inventory versus inventory that has been paid for yet. The numbers, they start to mix together. So yeah, I guess that's the hard part, but like, I guess gross revenue and total sales, what are we doing per month? You know, when I was like 24, maybe, you know, we could do 30 or $40,000 a month in revenue. Yeah. Around there. Okay. Yeah. And it's always hard. Cause then you have, first off you have overhead, you have like a warehouse to rent and then you have, like shipping costs. Well, actually, at that time, I was running out of my. I, I think I was running it out of my garage at one point too. Uh, that's how it started. You know, the, the warehouse was like later, but it went from the garage to like a storage facility to like two storage facilities to a bigger one to like a small thousand square foot warehouse, which is really hard to find, by the way, because nobody wants like no landlord wants a thousand. They want like a, a tenant that's going to take a four five thousand square foot warehouse. So. You know, finding these kind of really small warehouse spaces, and then I had a thousand square footer. Then I got two next to each other, and then and then it kind of went to like a bigger warehouse, and that's kind of how it's it like scaled up how you would think it would, like from you know the garage to like something a little bit bigger, something a little bit bigger, kind of yeah, that's how it grew. Yeah. But then as it scaled up, didn't you just have to buy more inventory? Like, I think that's kind of the hard thing about yeah. most physical product businesses. Like, let's say you're you know even if you're selling like skin cream, right? Right. Like. If you, you know, if you start doing a hundred grand in sales, then you have to have a hundred thousand units, like mm -hmm. in a storage facility yeah. somewhere. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so that's, that's kind of why I, I couldn't really answer because, you know, it's, I've been doing the same business now for what, almost a decade. And so in that time, a lot has happened. You know, there's real estate that got involved. And so the money kind of gets splashed everywhere. And, um, you know, then there's money in that, like construction and attorneys and legal and, and that ends up taking a big, you know, depending on how big your real estate projects are. I mean, you can start taking more and more money. And so the line becomes very blurry. My girlfriend always jokes, like I, you know, my, my life is really structureless. Like I do what needs to get done when it needs to get done, but I don't have a set like nine to five. Yeah. That makes sense. I guess this is why I really like online businesses or e-commerce 
especially with drop shipping, where we're not buying any inventory up front. Yep. And the margins are, I'm sure, smaller. Uh, it, it's, we probably don't have as much of a, um, I don't know, I guess like a brand, like to build around, you know, so it's easier for other people to come in and compete. But in general, at the end of the month, I can do my accounting on the first of the month and know exactly yeah. how much I owe yeah. or, you know, what the, what the net profit was. Right. Yeah. I mean, you, you hold no inventory and, and I'm, I'm kind of learning the back end of it right now. I mean, when it comes to inventory, you get stale inventory. How do you value that? Um, and as inventory ages, things that aren't selling, uh, it gets, you know, I, I basically look at things in a really big picture and that's how I can kind of see things. But I don't look at things like, oh, I brought in, you know, 100,000 units of this, like how many of these sold. I look at, you know, at the end of the year, do we have more money in the bank account than we did previously? And at the end of 10 years, personally, me, do I have more assets than I did 10 years ago? And, and then judging by the scale of those assets, you can say, okay, I'm moderately successful or I'm not, you know, after 10 years, if all you can afford, you know, if you, you, after 10 years of working, you have a condo, then that's one level of success. After 10 years, you have like a real estate empire. You have an idea. I mean, you have a really rough idea of what happened and that's good enough because really at the end of the day, after, you know, returns and exchanges and these random fees that hit you and random assessments, you know, a thousand dollars really at the end of the day, depending on the scale of your business can, can be a rounding error. You know, I could, um, you know, I can just get hit with like a random lawsuit, you know, and then that can be, you know, twenty, thirty thousand dollars really easily. And so, you know, these things happen and they happen all the time. IRS assessment. I got audited by the city, you know, the city of LA for tax, um, like state tax. So, I mean, you know, like, you know, I can get a call from my account saying, oh, okay, now you owe four thousand dollars to the state for whatever reason, you know, cause they kind of grossed your numbers and they take, they believe that you sold X amount percentage in California, you owe California sales tax this amount. So, you know, really, I, I, you have to look at things at a much larger scale and say, like, you know, at the end of a year, five years, is the business bigger? Do I have more assets? Is there more cash in the account? And that's a better idea of how you know you know that something's happening or something's not happening. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. Yeah. I think I actually remember the first year I was selling things online. I was based out of California, just out of you know, I was a sole proprietor out of my parents' house, basically. Right. Even though I was in Thailand, I didn't have an address. So I just used my parents' address, and I had to collect. You know, eight point seven five percent. Yep. California state tax. Yep. Sales tax, and then forward that over, and it was just it was complicated because mm-hmm. there was no straightforward way to do it. It was kind of just like I, you know, I tried to contact you know the BOE, the Board of Equalization, yeah. uh-huh. Calif- uh-huh. you know, California yep. state yep. tax, whatever, and I was like, hey, what should I do with this money? Yeah. And they're like, oh, basically just collect it. They're like, and give then it to us. Give it to us. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, do you want me to send you the order? And they're like, no, just give us the money. And I'm like, what money? Like, what? Like, and they're just like, just give us the money. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know how to calculate this. Right. So it was so confusing. I, th- I think at the end of the year, I just sent them a check for like, you know, a couple thousand dollars or whatever. Right. Uh-huh. I think I just like looked up what orders were sent to an address in California. Uh-huh. And then I think I might have lost out on some because I didn't collect the state tax. And I was like, man, this is so complicated. I don't want to do this. I don't right. want to hold on the money thinking, this is my money, mm-hmm. and at any year I owe it. Right. So I moved the business to Wyoming. Mm-hmm. So I would only be responsible of collecting state tax to Wyoming residents. Yeah. But nobody lives in Wyoming. Right. <laughs> in the five years I've sold stuff online, I've never had one customer from Wyoming. Wow. Ever in like wow. a, over thousands of orders. Wow, that's crazy. 
Yeah, I mean that's that's pretty much what it is, right? I'll, I'll sit down with my accountant and I'll you know say, okay, well, you know, what do we owe in state tax? What do we owe in city tax? What do we owe in federal tax? You know, and so he'll go through everything, and it's confusing, man. What if somebody buys something in California, collects sales tax, then they refund it? I mean, it it sounds easy on a on a small scale, but if you're doing you know, thousands of orders or hundreds of orders a day or a month, you know, they start to, you know, what if somebody buys something and returns it three months later, or, you know, what if they don't, you know, whatever. I mean, there's all these kind of extraneous circumstances that can occur. And so it, it gets confusing. And I think it, it sounds simple. And I remember thinking, oh, well, just keep track of everything. But I think once you do it, it becomes a different thing than what's what you think in theory would occur. Yeah, you definitely. Know? And I think that's why if you watch shows like The Profit, yeah, Marcus I do. Lomas. Marcus Limones. I love that show. Yeah, I highly yeah. recommend it. You'll see how screwed up the accounting for most small businesses are. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of businesses that will do a million dollars worth of sales. Uh-huh. And the end of the year, they'll have nothing left. Yep. They'll have zero net yep. profit. Absolutely. And you're like, how did that happen? Mm-hmm. It know? happens all the time. Yeah. And you're like, how does that happen? You have a 40% gross margin. You have, uh-huh. you know, whatever it is. Like, how do you literally have exactly zero left yep. or even negative. Like how are you running a negative $200,000 a year business by selling a million dollars worth of stuff yep. and how are you even still open? Yeah, absolutely. It happens. I mean, I mean, it happens. I mean, talking to my accountant, I mean, he tells me these stories too, cause he sees the books of everybody, you know, and, um, it happens. It, people, you know, people will, you know, gross a million dollars in sales, gross $10 million in sales and break even or, you know, I've heard stories of people, you know, grossing $10 million and making a hundred thousand. It's like, well, how is that even possible to do? You know, but it happens, man. I mean, it's, it happens more often than you would think. And after running businesses, I can see how it easily happens. Like, uh, yeah, all day long. I think especially as small business owners, we run everything through our business. So, you know, you go out to eat. You're like, oh, you know, let's talk about business. You know, yeah, but that's not going to impact a $10 million a year business, yeah, right? It still I, happens. It, it's weird because I think what happens is like everything kind of goes through. Everything's muddled. Nobody's keeping track of anything. Mm-hmm. And then, especially with inventory, people buy too much inventory. Oh, inventory is the worst. And then they have to get rid of it somehow. They yep. lose money on that. Yep. Like it just it just disappears. It, it literally disappears. I mean, I'm right now I'm, I'm sitting in a warehouse. I mean, I'm in Chiang Mai, but I have a warehouse in LA and my warehouse is, is packed full of inventory. I mean, it's just ridiculously packed full of inventory. And, you know, again, I don't need to know the rough numbers. I know that all that inventory is paid for. I know that I own all of it. So I have a rough idea of what's what in there. But, um, yeah, if you ask me an exact dollar amount, I wouldn't be able to, I wouldn't be able to tell you, you know, but, but like, so if you were to honest, be honest with yourself, what percentage of that inventory is just dead weight that's sitting there that you never should have bought in the first place? Um, that's hard to answer too. Cause let, let's say you buy 10 units of something like a 10, you know, 10 pens and it takes a year to sell. Do you consider that dead inventory? Like what's your run rate? Are you, are you hoping to dump it in a, a month? Like what do you consider dead inventory? Right? So if, if for example, I know that my business will last another two years and some people would say, if I bought 10 pens, I want them gone in a month. But if I said, look, I've got like a thousand SKUs. If I buy 10 pens and I get it back in two years with profit, I'm okay with that. Right. So it becomes, you know, it, it becomes tough. I walk into these literal stationary stores sometimes. Yeah. Especially here in Thailand, but yeah. even in the U.S. too. Yeah. Like, let's say like a 99 cents to like a, like a Chinese dollar shop kind of thing. Not the, not the, not the big American 99 cent stores, but like, you know, you guys know what I'm talking about. You go walk to a shop. It's owned by some Chinese family and they have a, Bunch of stuff. If everything under the roof imaginable, kitchen stuff, you know, stationary stuff, and 
you walk in and you look around, you're like, how, <laughs> how, like, how, like, how do they keep track of this number one? Yeah. Uh, they don't. That's the honest answer. And then how do they know what to order? How do they know what to reorder? How long has this stuff been sitting on the shelf? Yeah. And a lot of it, I guarantee, has been sitting there forever. Right. Like, you, like, they'll have, like, uh, floppy disks still sitting there. <laughs> You know, or like, you know, CDR, rewritable, like, you know, CD-ROMs. And you're like, this stuff has literally been sitting here for seven years. It's never going to sell. Yeah. Is it really just, they just buy stuff that's cheap and they think maybe it'll sell. And then if it doesn't, they're just like, oh, well, just leave it there until it does. And as long as at the end of the month, we have more money than right. It than could not. Be. Yeah. It could be. Or they could say something like, you know, like I'll buy, you know, a hundred, a hundred boxes of CDRs. And if I sold 10 of them. Essentially, like my cost is broke even and after that, like it's just, you know, it's all quote unquote profit. So, you know, they sold 10 and they're like, all right, cool. Like our cost is like sorted out. And so now we have 90 and whatever we sell is what we sell. I mean, it is kind of not the best inventory management, but like I said, after running an inventory business, it's not like these people aren't stupid. Like this sort of issue happens to everyone that runs inventory. To me, it's it's insane, and it's something I never like. It's like my nightmare. It's a headache. It's a headache. It's a headache. It's like a hoarder's house. Yeah. It's like I do not want that in my life. I think it would just add stress in my life every day if I had to see that. If I had to try to figure it out. Absolutely. And I think that's why I would never want to have a physical business. But at the same time, I think there's a lot of like benefits of it. All right. So let's, can we t- briefly talk about maybe some of the, the pros of having a physical, you know, business like, you know, like e-commerce, for example. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't drop shit. Well, not, not e-commerce, sorry. Like a physical, not, I, I guess you kind of do e-commerce anyways, but yeah, like. The actual holding physical inventory. Yeah, exactly. yeah I, I know what you're saying. Like not drop shipping. Yeah. yeah. I mean, generally speaking, I mean, I don't, I can't say this absolutely, but in my case, the profits were better. Um, you know, holding inventory and uh, going early on, the profits were pretty decent. And so holding inventory made sense. Now it actually makes less sense than it did because of so much competition. But, um, you know, I, I have this sort of competitive advantage in that, that I've been doing it for a long time. And so we kind of already have this infrastructure built out. So it kind of is, is not as big of a leap for us, but it is a headache. And, you know, it, it does, you know, inventory does get old, it gets stale, it messes up with your accounting. I mean, that is just the reality of running a business. But if you want to like run a business, you know, almost, you know, a, a lot of businesses run off inventory, whether it's food or retail. I mean, any, almost, almost any retail. I mean, you can even argue that digital downloads are inventory in their own way, right? They don't, they don't cost money. They don't really depreciate, but they are also inventory. And so, you know, Unless you're, you know, doing something else, that is inventory, and that is kind of an issue that you will have to deal with if you run any sort of inventory-based business. So I think actually one of the biggest benefits of having to buy inventory first is it forces people to have a different mindset when they start a business. I know that for a fact that let's say someone, you know, wanted to sell, you know, kitchen tables. If you had to actually buy. Thirty thousand dollars worth of kitchen tables. I guarantee you will do whatever it takes. You will work as many hours as needed to sell those thirty thousand dollars <laughs> worth of kitchen tables. You would figure it out. Yeah, like yeah. you would. Anytime something came up, and you know everything comes up, right? So let's say let's say we can start a business. We have a uh, you know Dan Dan the dropshipper versus you know Ivan the inventory guy, right? So. They're both going to actually run into really similar issues. You know, they're like, okay, let's start a business. 
And then they find out, oh, I need to have a, like a seller's permit. Yeah. Uh huh. So, you know, Dan goes online and is like, oh man, this is a pain in the butt. I have forms to fill out. Mm-hmm. I got to like register with, you know, my state. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, I can't do this. He gives up. The Ian, the inventory guy's like, oh crap, I just spent 30 grand. Yep. Let me figure this out. Right. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's <laughs> definitely true. Yeah. Yeah. You kind of paint yourself in a corner, right? But, Sometimes that can be like the best thing for you, right? Like you come out swinging and realizing that you can actually get shit done, you know? Yeah. And then like you'll figure that out. I'm like, okay, well, you know, what next? Like, oh, I got to get a phone number or I got to mm-hmm. get uh, – I, I got to have something to actually collect like sales. I need a payment processor. Mm-hmm. I need, you know, a tax ID number. Yeah, yeah. I need like – you know, all these things that come up I think are very similar for both businesses. Yeah, absolutely. And the only real difference is one is done, you know, I guess, you know, I guess with the drop shipping, you're not, you're not handling the physical shipping yourself, but you might still be handling the shipping. You might still be the one getting the FedEx, you know, um, sticker, you know, sent to your, your, you know, your dealer and they just slap it on a box. Right. You know, you might still have to get a freight price quote. Yep. You know, you're just not the physical one to, to to do it to touch the inventory, right? Which is, I mean, I would argue that's a great position to be in. That's like, if, yes, after like handling inventory and unloading containers and stacking inventory and dealing with dusty inventory. Yes, I mean, I can say that dropshipping definitely has its advantages. So let's talk about some of the disadvantages, right? So first, we talked about like lower margins. I know for dropshipping in general. Our margins might be, let's say, thirty to thirty-two, maybe thirty-five percent max. Yeah, and that's before advertising costs. That's before like giving free shipping or anything. Oof, slim, yeah. So it ends up being pretty slim. Yeah, with like I guess wholesale inventory when you buy, you know, when you buy and hold your inventory. Like I would imagine the lowest profit margin that you would even accept is like 50% and it could be like up to 200, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but again, it, it depends, right? I mean, I've been in that stage where profit margins were really high and then because of competition have gone like down. Like, so, you know, even one product, you can experience both ends of that spectrum. Yeah, it's pretty... It, and it's pretty terrifying when your profit margins get thinner and thinner. And, you know, for example, I've got a warehouse in Los Angeles and a warehouse in Los Angeles is going to be more per square foot than a warehouse in Wyoming or a warehouse in Texas or pretty much a warehouse anywhere else. So, you know, you, you do have these kind of competitors that are coming up that, you know, that are out for blood. They'll set up. I mean, I know people are setting up warehouses in Kentucky because that's where the UPS, you know, global shipping hub is. So things are more convenient. And, so yes, I mean that's that is something you have to deal with, and it's not easy, man. I mean the life of entrepreneur, it's kind of a feast or famine thing. So when you're feasting, save money and invest well, and don't spend foolishly because famine will come, and it's happened to me multiple times. Like I've gone out of business several times and always recovered, but you know I don't know what's going to happen in the next five or ten years, and so you know just be diligent with what you got because you know it could dry up, and it you know, every day companies go out of business. You know companies that do well go out of business. You know. I definitely agree. That's really good advice. And probably the best thing I ever did was I continued being somewhat frugal even when I was making a lot of money. Yep. I was living in Chiang Mai and business was taken off. It was like the feast, feast year. Yeah. You were feasting. Uh-huh. Right? I was hitting like 20 grand profit per month. Uh-huh. I was like, man, I can afford anything. Yeah. Especially in Chiang Mai. Yeah. Yeah. And I was tempted just to be stupid with the money. Mm-hmm. I had friends who, they would, you know, they do like these PPC campaigns where like, you know, they would not make anything for months 
at a time and then they would hit a campaign and just milk it and be like, oh, I made 50 grand this month or mm-hmm. something insane. Mm-hmm. So they checked in to the Canterbury Hills Hotel, which is a five-star hotel. They started spending like two or three thousand dollars a month just renting out a hotel room. They, they rented out like a, like a, basically a two-bedroom suite there. <sighs> they had daily house cleaning. They had <laughs> a like... A daily house cleaning? Yeah. Come on, man. And they... Uh, I remember going over and... They had a huge TV, like a 70-inch TV. <laughs> and I was like, where did you get this? They're like, oh, we just bought it at the electronics store, or the, whatever it was, the yeah. Power Buy. And I was like, what, but aren't you guys just here for a month? They're like, yeah, yeah. But we'll just, I was like, what are you going to do with it? They're like, oh, we're just going to leave it. Yeah. And I'm like, this kind of dumb spending is what gets people in trouble. Yeah. And I was so lucky that I upgraded my life really slowly. I think I... Took my budget from you know a, you know living under a thousand dollars a month to saying all right let's go crazy let's you know bump it up to fifteen hundred a month yeah you know which but that ain't luck that is know. discipline there's a difference man I mean like it's not lucky that you like were diligent with your money right like so yeah I I totally agree being diligent with your money is probably the most important skill an entrepreneur can have because if you want to live that wild ass life where it's like feast and famine, which you will if you want to go into business for yourself, then when it's feast time, then you just, you know, you, you go easy, you take what you need and you save it. And if you want to YOLO out, then wait five years and see where you're standing first or wait 10 years. And, and yes, you need that discipline. Otherwise, like it ain't for you, you know, because you can be broke. So you said you invested some of the money when it was going really well. Uh, what did you end up buying? Um, primarily stock market stuff and then diversifying into real estate. And so, um, that's pretty much it. I mean, it's quote unquote, it's passive. I mean, you know, I, first thing I do every morning is roll over and check the stock market. So, you know, whatever that counts for, you know, is the work I put in and I'm always, I'm glued to CNBC and in China, it's weird because in Chiang Mai, I don't have it here, but every morning I'm up, you know, five, six o'clock in the morning and I'm on CNBC. Even here when I was jet lag, I'd, I'd stay awake till the stock market is open just so wow. I can see where everything opens. Yeah. Are, are you investing in individual stocks or? Yeah, like- absolutely. I individual and also mutual funds and all that stuff. I have, um, like a managed account too with Fidelity. They do. Um, they do something called managed account where you can, you know, buy into it and a, a fund manager will essentially look after it, which by the way, ended up not working out. They, I think amortized over five years. I got 8% and the, the, you know, the time was between, I want to say 2013 to now, which is one of the greatest bull runs in history. And I, I took a look at the S and P 500 and the Dow and it's, I think it was roughly about 15% compounded every year and I was getting 8%. So I actually, Ended up pulling my money out about six months ago out of that fund. I was, yeah. I called them and I said, what the hell? Why are you performing at 8% when the S&P, you know, the Dow is doing 15? And they said, well, the reason why is because we were buying bonds and we were like, protecting the downside. After I heard that, I kind of understood, okay, because like you're just looking at the S&P, which is all stock, right? And so they're like, you basically like not playing it safely is what they were kind of saying. So I said, okay, it was a mistake to do. It was a bad idea in retrospect, but going forward, you had no idea that this was going to be the greatest bull run in history, obviously. So looking back, like I got 8% a year, which was not a good return. I mean, it was, it was okay, but it wasn't that great a return. And I'm sure the fees were much higher than if you had invested in like a S&P 500 yeah, index I, fund. Well, yeah, that was actually 8% after the fees. The fees are about one, one point, you know, give, give or take. And so, yes, but that one point, it does add up over a lifetime. I think my lesson for that, and I don't know, I mean, Looking backwards, it would have been better putting it into like just the Dow 30 or S&P. But then again, you know, 
you could make the argument. Let's say I, I let's say I take all that money and I, I put it back into S and P five hundred. We could go into some sort of recession or correction in a year or two, and I would have just lost all that money. And that had I left it in that initial fund, those bonds would have protected me or whatever. It would have been that more stabilized portfolio would have, you know, handled adversity better. So really, it's it, it is hard to say. So I'm glad that we brought this up because the kind of the next stage of being an entrepreneur is once you start having money, what do you do with it? And it's a whole new skill set to learn. Yeah. This investing game. Yeah. I mean, like if you don't if you don't know what you're doing, you can get like a Vanguard fund or a Fidelity Freedom Fund and I mean that that's a whole different topic, but Fidelity has something called a Freedom Fund, which is a they call it a target dated fund and what this is okay, the basic timeline for investing is go in heavy and risky when you're young and you can afford to lose and you have time to make up losses. Go in heavy when you're young. Go easy when you're old. So, for example, a really volatile stock, which I love, is like Tesla. So if you're in your 20s, you can invest in Tesla. There is a chance Tesla will go to zero. I mean, I don't think it will, but there's, it's possible because it's a young company. So you put, you know, money into Tesla and in 10 years, maybe you'll be rewarded with high risk with high return or you'll go to zero. But you have more time. You have another 10, 20, 30 years before you retire to make that money up. And when you're in your 50s and 60s, go for a company that will like never disappear like Google or, you know, Amazon or something, something, you know, you know, Walmart, something that, you know, Coca-Cola, something that is, you know, won't move as quickly, won't increase in value or percentages as quickly, but the downside is less risky. So those target data funds, that's what they do. They say, how old are you? You say, okay, I'm 20 years old. Okay. So you put money, like you put, a thousand dollars into that fund. And if you leave that thousand dollars in there until you're 60, they will constantly adjust. So when you're in your twenties, like, Oh, you're 20. Okay. We're going to buy these hyper aggressive stocks. And then at 25, like they'll pay taper and then 30, they'll taper. And by the time you're at, you know, 50 or 60, you own like AARP. Well, <laughs> that was a joke. There, yeah. There's no AARP, but you know, you own like Walmart stock or whatever stock, you know, GE oil company stocks that, you know, quote unquote won't go anywhere or go, go somewhere very slowly. Yeah. And, like Coca Cola is probably the best right. example. Of yeah. That. Yeah. You, you go from, you know, capital appreciation to capital preservation. That's basically the timeline. Yeah. Yeah. So how old are you now? I'm 36. Okay. Yeah. And when did you first start investing? Uh, I started when I was around 16. Again, I, I had, my uncle was like a self-made entrepreneur and, you know, very successful. And so he guided me and he was always, you know, you know, when I was 16 or 17, I started making some money. I wanted to go buy like a Benz, you know, I wanted to kind of do the same thing that, you know, you, I wanted some twenties. I wanted a sound system. And my uncle's like, you know, open like a SEP IRA <laughs> or like open like an IRA and no, no 16 or 17 year old kid wants to hear that, you know, but, um, but I ended up doing it because he like sat me down and did it. And it was, you know, like one of the bigger, better decisions in my life for sure. Yeah. So an IRA is what? Um, it's, it's basically like, how do I say this? It's like, it depends. It, for example, I have something called a SEP IRA, which is like a self-employment IRA. And it's, it's, uh, a fund where you, or it's a tax shelter where you can put money away and, you know, not pay taxes on it until later. Yeah. So basically it's an individual retirement account. And basically I think you put money in, you put money in now and then it just grows tax free until you're, ta- you're, you're ready to retire. Right? right. Okay. So I guess to here, the numbers will help it out. So right. let's say you made, $10,000. And let's say you put $4,000 into a, an IRA. Okay. 
then you can report your taxable income as $6,000. Okay, so what that means is that you pay tax on $6,000, but you really made ten. So it's a tax shelter in that aspect, but when you pull the money out is when you pay the tax. So you put that four grand away into investing, and hopefully in 30 years, that four grand is, I don't know, 10 grand or 15 or 20 grand, and then you pay your taxes on the back end of that. So that's kind of how that works. There's a lot of these sort of vehicles. Real estate's another vehicle. There's a lot of these vehicles that you can use to reduce your tax liability, and so that's kind of what the accountant is for. Um, you know, you've got, you know, 401ks, IRAs, you've got all sorts of you know, the education, educational funds that you can set up that will reduce your tax liability. So, I mean, that's something you need to talk to a professional about, but there are a lot of ways. Also, capital uh, depreciating with real estate and, you know, tax write-offs and all this other stuff. Very cool. If you guys are, you know, interested, take a listen to our other podcasts. Or, well, my other podcast. It's Invest Like a Boss. We talk about this every week. And I really think it's the next kind of stage for entrepreneurs to figure out how to make passive income through your money. Because for you know, I really think it's the best way to make money is have your money make you money instead of you working for it. Yeah, absolutely. That's like the most powerful way. If you, for example, if, if the average, you know, S and P over the last 10 years was 15%, let's just say, and you had a million dollars, let's just say a million dollars in the S and P 500. That means every year you would make $150,000 without lifting a finger and never touch that original million dollars. And that's how powerful it is. And you scale the numbers down. Let's say you put a hundred grand into the S&P 500. That'd be $15,000 free. You want to take $15,000 free a year for doing absolutely nothing without ever touching your initial principal, right? Scale that down to 10,000, whatever it is. I mean, it becomes really, really powerful. And as the numbers scale up, it becomes even more powerful. And this is how kind of rich people can never spend the amount of money that they're making because you know, if you've got $10 million or 20 or $100 million, you can see how that 15% gets to a point where you just can't even spend it fast enough that it's accruing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And even if it's a slow year and it's 5%, it's still, it's yeah. still a lot. Yeah. Hey guys, real quick, I want to tell you more about that super cool luggage I mentioned in the beginning of the episode. It's High Path 2-in-1 Luggage. It is designed to be exactly the maximum size for carry-on luggage, which means you can travel the world carrying just these backpacks. And what's really cool is instead of having one giant bag that becomes a little bit useless once you get to your destination, it actually splits into two. It's perfect for digital nomads and people who want to travel like a boss. You get a normal backpack with a laptop sleeve, which is perfect for day trips and working, and a larger piece of luggage that you can just leave at home or in your hotel or your Airbnb when you are in your destination. So between the two bags, you get the maximum amount of luggage allowed by most airlines, and you don't have to check in bags. So check them out. Go to Amazon, type in HYPATH, which is H-Y-P-A-T-H, and you can use the coupon code JohnnyFD to get 10% off. Once again, go to Amazon.com, type in HYPATH, H-Y-P-A-T-H, and use the coupon code JohnnyFD to get 10% off. Check them out. So I think a, a lot of people listening to this podcast specifically are thinking, okay, well, how do I get to that point where I have enough money to start investing? Right. For you, would you wait until you had a bunch of profit at the end of the year and then buy investments, or would you just take some out every month and just put it in and say, okay, every month I'm just going to put, you know, put something aside? Yeah. So uh, what John is referring to is called dollar cost averaging, and that's basically, you know, there's two ways to invest. You could say a stock, let's say a stock oscillates between ten dollars and a hundred, and you have no idea if it's going to be a hundred tomorrow or ten dollars today. So how do you invest? You know, would you? 
do you when do you know when to buy? Obviously, you want to buy when it's ten dollars, but you have no idea what's going to happen. So, dollar cost averaging is saying, look, I'll take you know a hundred dollars of my money, and every month I'll I'll spend ten dollars and buy into the stock. This way, you ride the ups and you ride the downs. So, for me, if capital is not accruing interest or not growing, then it's wasted capital. So, I would always like to deploy capital into some sort of investment that will. Because you got to figure too, inflation is 3%. And so every year, your money, the value of your money is being reduced by 3%. So it's really important to know that $100 today won't buy the same thing as $100 in five years or 10 years or even two years. And so don't forget that the money that you have is always losing value. And that's why, you know, you hear like our grandparents talking about how they could get a haircut for a dollar or two dollars, and now haircuts, you know, ten to fifteen. Well, bucks. even now, like a bowl, a bowl of noodles, I remember it used to be four ninety nine, mm-hmm. and now when I go back to San Francisco, it's fifteen dollars. Yeah, and that's that's inflation in a big part. Yeah, and you guys might live somewhere where it's like like oh, it didn't go up that much, but just think about like a, look at like how much McDonald's was. Yeah, when you were just a few years ago, twenty nine cent cheeseburger, twenty twenty nine yeah. twenty nine cent cheeseburgers that's, that's and hamburgers. Gone. That's yeah. never happening again. Uh-huh. You know the do- the dollar menu is now the five dollar menu. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I remember well, when like a yeah. Honda a Honda Civic was like you know fifteen grand or you know twelve grand, and now you know it's like twenty all yeah. day. You know. So, but like, I guess my question really was more like, as a business owner, how would you know if you should just take the profit with the you know the money you had in the bank and just keep buying more inventory, keep growing the business, or if you should just take some of that and put it put it into like a savings account or re- retirement account for the future? Right. So. I guess the way I would look at it is whatever has a higher rate of return. So if you think, let's say you have $100 and you think that you can get 5% uh, or 10% return on your business and you can get 8% in the stock market, then wouldn't you rather put that in the 10% return on your business, right? So, I mean, you're not going to be always right. Sometimes you're going to fall on your face. I mean, that happens, but that's just part of it, you know? So as long as, as long as it's doing something, at least it's moving. But if it's sitting in your bank account, then it's losing value. Okay. So you you said you bought stocks and then you also bought real estate, right? How did that happen? Um, I just wanted to diversify, honestly. I just wanted to diversify and I wanted to get into something else. So I bought real estate and I mean, that's a whole, I mean, I could go on forever about like, I mean, the the headaches of real estate in LA. I mean, that's a whole different discussion. But um, yes, I did diversify and they always say you want a diversified portfolio. So you want, you know, stocks, you want bonds, you want real estate, you want precious metals, all this stuff. And so that's kind of what I was doing. I was... I didn't intend to diversify because that was just what I was told to do. I just, I don't know, it just kind of worked out that way. I saw an opportunity, and I took it, and um, so you know, it, it's it's a totally different investment. It's a totally different vehicle, and it was very educational and very, for me, very stressful. Um, and I think it's just specific to real estate in Los Angeles. Okay, so yeah. you would not recommend people buy like rental properties. In LA, no, or probably I, even in California as a whole. Right? Yeah, in California, if if you see rent control, I would run. I mean, I have, I would say, after owning real estate uh, for over five years now, that buying real estate in Los Angeles has greatly handicapped my returns. And had it been in a business friendly environment like Texas, for example, I would have made more money. And it really taught me how important policy is, how important government policy is, how important politics are, and how important governances and the way, you know, government, you know, I, I'm, I'm a, I hate government. Like, I don't like government. I don't like big, big government. I don't like the way they work. I think they're really inefficient. They're really poor with capital. They don't give a damn. You know, when's the last time you went to the DMV and had a good experience? When's the last time you went to, um, 
the post office had a good experience. I mean, when, when things are privatized, for example, post office versus UPS, I mean, wh- where would you rather go? Right. And so, um, and you know, t- county hospital versus uh, like Kaiser Permanente or something like that, where would you rather go? Right. And so I'm a big kind of private privatized guy. Like I, I like, uh, things to be privatized. And so, um, yeah, I, I, same thing with in, in LA, for example, the freeways, right? Like I think the, f- the freeways are privatized. They, you, they, you wouldn't be experiencing anywhere near the amount of gridlock that you experience because the, you know, the freeways are controlled by the government, essentially, you know, the city. So, yeah, it's really interesting because I, I actually, I really do think that there's no, you know, such thing as like a perfect system, but in general, out of all the imperfect, imperfect systems out there, having like actual pure capitalism is probably going to be the best thing that we have right now. Yeah. I still think that we should have government for some things like, you know, like let's say police force, fire, you know, firefighting and to kind of, you know, have step in when like actually necessary. So like, for example, let's say everything was, you know, was privatized. I would still want the government saying, all right, guys, you still can't just dump, you know, pollutants in the, in the you know, in the ocean. Like, right. You know, this is something we have to step in at. Yeah. But in general, I think it'd be better if it's just much smaller. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I agree. I, it's not so extreme where just business runs everything because the natural nature of business is monopoly. And, like, you can see that with Amazon right now eventually taking over everything. So th- there definitely needs to be, like, a check on it. But I think California is primarily run by governance, like, government. And so that is where it really falls. In my opinion, falls five. If you look at, you know, L.A., like look at the roads in LA, look at the hospital in LA versus like a city like Irvine, which is kind of quasi private in its own way, right? I mean, Irvine, the streets are beautiful. The the healthcare is good. The hospitals are clean. Go to LA County and it's just like filthy in there. And, you know, so the streets are all messed up. And so there, there definitely is something to be said about private business. I obviously don't think that, you know, private business should own the world, but I would, yeah, I would err on a kind of capitalist world then versus, you know. That definitely makes sense. So... Why did you come out here to Chiang Mai? Like, what what struck the, uh, I guess, the core to make you make you decide to uproot? Because because you sold everything, right? Like, you you made a big move. Yeah. Well, we sold all our uh, belongings, more or less. You know, I had an apartment out there, and so you know, we just kind of sold like our you know stuff, like our you know dishes. Well, we, we trashed a lot of stuff too, but we you know we got rid of all our stuff and made to move to Chiang Mai. We were just kind of fed up with, um, you know, me personally, I just got tired of LA, you know, and I know that. In a year, that McDonald's on the corner will still be there, and that Starbucks at that corner will still be there, and I will have kind of not really missed that much. I, me personally, ended up kind of seeing that we were living a life of just kind of patterns. Like I'd always go to the same places over and over again, and you know, Chiang Mai is exotic. It's got um, all the conveniences of Western life, and um, it's a change of pace, you know. And they got you know really great beaches, you know, in, in southern Thailand. And it was just you know it was really amazing cost of living. And the biggest thing was value for your dollar here is humongous. And you know you can hear about it, but the minute you actually do it, it just becomes so much more real. So I know you said you you had found my stuff a while back, but like how did what did you even start searching for? Like did you already in your mind say I want to move to Thailand or what? Like what were you searching? You know. That's a, I don't know. I, you know, one of my friends, Kevin, my friend Kevin Newenick actually was talking about you a long time ago back in the day. And so I ended up, you know, watching you and, you know, he, he's been watching you for a while. And, um, so, you know, he, we talked about it and, 
Um, I just, you know, I just, uh, I probably watched a video or two or three and then it started coming up on our feet. And then I started seeing all these other, you know, YouTubers coming on and that kind of opened my eyes to that sort of life, you know, and that, um, there is a world outside of America and we've done a lot of, and initially when I first discovered this, I tried to kind of half-ass it by traveling a lot. And so we would, you know, leave to places for like a month at a time and it just wasn't good enough, you know, and we finally just made the move and I can't, I don't miss LA at all. I mean, aside from my friends and family, you know, I don't miss the traffic. I don't miss, I don't miss Starbucks. You know, I kind of miss Mexican food and that's more or less about it. You know, in, in Thailand here, I mean, I can get good, you know, Asian food and, you know, good, good, just really authentic cooked food here and everything's really fresh the fruits don't even compare you know in la specifically i I mean i'm speaking of la a lot because that's where i'm from i don't want to say you know arizona because i'm not from there but i would imagine it you know that the fruits here in Chiang Mai are probably better than in arizona too Well, what's crazy i think we actually have you know some of the best fruit in california compared to the rest of the u.s Mm -hmm. and we have because we have you know for example in LA, we have like Mexican fruit fruit carts. Oh, yeah, I love this. They're really good. You know, they have these Mexican guys with these like carts of fruit that chop mm. it in front of you. Oh yeah, but it's pretty expensive. Yeah, like how much is a bag of pineapple like if, if, from one of these places? Yeah, I, it's funny because I actually go to those a lot, and I would say like it's like four bucks. I want to say four bucks That's for like not that bad. Well, for, I mean, it's 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 not that bad. It's not that good. But it, here for that same bag, right? That I I had brought to board game night yesterday. Yeah. Risk. Uh huh. It was twenty baht. It's like under a dollar. Which is like, <laughs> it's like what, eighty cents. And it was better here. Yo, yeah. The fruit is undeniably better here, and you know it. Yeah, you know, and th- you know, and when I was in LA, I lived across the street from a Whole Foods or a block away from a Whole Foods. You know, and it doesn't matter. I mean, and you know, it's. I think Whole Foods is ridiculous, anyways. You know, I was there and. Um, it was like 14. I saw a, a jar of orange juice that was cold pressed for $14. A orange juice was $14 for a jar. And it was like a liter. It was like not a lot. And it was just, it was just mind blowing. So uh, over here, I mean, organic fruit is just called fruit over here, you know? And so, you know, I'm looking right now on the table and Johnny has bananas and they're, you know, they're, they're. Oh, that was 20 baht for that whole, the whole batch. But, you know, they don't all look the same. They have spots on them. I mean, that is how nature. tasty. But that's how nature makes them. You know, when I, when I go to Whole Foods and I look at these bananas that looks like they've been like plastic surgeried, you know, like they just all look exactly the same. They're all perfectly yellow. That ain't how nature cooks them up. And here's the thing is those, even though they look nice, they're kind of like the, yeah, I mean, they just don't no taste fla- good. No they're, flavor. Yeah, there's no substance, no. right? It's like, you know, if everyone in the world got plastic surgery, put a bunch of makeup on, and but didn't, you know, but like that lost their flavor, lost their culture, yeah. lost their sweetness. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what it is. And then and then charge a lot for it because like yeah. it's, you know, Whole Foods, like perfect manicured fruit. You yeah. Know? It's like Ryan Seacrest was like sitting at like a fruit stand. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Everything was just like perfect and tailored and manicured and like you know, I don't know. That's just not, I, I know that that's not how nature cooks them up. And so, so like, so cost of living, like what were you spending back home on average per month? Uh, that's, well, that's, that's pretty tough for me to answer. Cause, um, I mean, are you, t- I mean, cause I was getting like, I'm in, you know, I have the attorney fees. I mean, what, like, what are you talking about? Like, just like, like at go, home? Like cost of living, like when you go out to eat, like what's the average cost of meal? Like what are you spending for transport? All that, you know, that stuff. Um, well, you know, I don't know if I'm like the, cause we I, we essentially eat out at least once a day, so we probably spend a lot of money eating out. Um, 
don't know, like average meal, like lunch, dinner. You know, you know, I'd go to let's say, I don't know, Chipotle, right? And I'd get like a burrito and like a chips and guac and a drink, right? So like twelve, thirteen dollars, you know, um, that sort of thing. You know, uh, even like a like a chicken salad with like a drink might be like twelve, thirteen bucks. So I'd say around that ballpark. Okay. And then for dinner, like how much does it cost to go out? So yeah, dinner dinner gets like pretty ugly. Like you know, if, you know, we probably have sushi like you know at least you know twice a month. I would say, and so you know, sushi would you know be like forty bucks a person, thirty forty bucks a person. Um, so dinner, I don't know, you could probably average it out to like I don't know twenty bucks a person if I had to guess. I don't know. And then out here, what have you been spending? Oh jeez, the baby Jesus. Um, so like yesterday we. Had lunch, uh, me and my girlfriend. We got like uh, a piece of fried chicken. Like I got a big piece of like a like a, th- a drumstick and a thigh, and then three entrees and rice and free water. And she got um, like a drumstick and two entrees and rice. It was like a a pretty big meal, and it was uh, like three dollars and twenty five cents or something, like, some wow. ridiculous. Yeah, and oh, even today this morning we. There's a restaurant right by our where we're staying, and it's not the cheapest place in the world. But we both, me and her, can eat for. Um, I, we ate this morning there. We probably spent about five dollars and fifty cents for both of us. And oh, and we get drinks too. We we, we like we we eat how we want to eat. So we get like you know entrees each, and then we get like a vegetable, and then we get like two drinks each or one drink each, you know. And so we don't skimp, you know. We, we don't. So the first time. That we hung out. Oh no, no, it's not the first time. Uh, I think the second time I hung out, we went to dinner with this um, this couple that I actually met at the immigration office in LA while getting our visas, and we went out to this like really good roast chicken place, mm-hmm. and I over ordered by accident. I think like I just I just ordered. I didn't count how many dishes. I just literally ordered like two, one or two of each of mm-hmm. every good item. Mm-hmm. I want to see, how many plates did we have in front of us? A lot. It was a lot. I mean, the Thai portions are smaller, but you know, I want to say at so least I want to say we had four four meat dishes, four types of salad. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had drinks all around. Dr- yeah, drinks. We had ice cream for dessert. Ice cream for dessert. We had like sticky rice for everyone. Mm-hmm. I got a second portion of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a fried. Papaya salad as well. Wait, I think one or two. One. That one we had one, but we one. had like three types of papaya salad as well. We had so many plates. I think I want to guess we had like between eight and eleven dishes come. Yeah. For four people. Yeah. Which is ridiculous. We don't need that much food. Yeah. And the total. And so this is like the most I've spent at this restaurant ever. But even then, the total bill was like seven dollars a person. Yep. And this is going insane. Yeah, we're yellowing it. And like, what would that have been in LA? Oh man. Um, yeah, I, geez, I, don't. I, I feel like if we if it, if I said you know if we were in LA and I was like okay it's like forty bucks each we'd be like okay yeah absolutely like you wouldn't you wouldn't be like no no the can't be yeah you look at the bill you'd be uh, like oh I guess right yeah. tax and tip yeah you know, tip tip yeah. is gonna be the killer fifteen percent tip on like a hundred dollar bill or two hundred dollar bill that's that adds up yeah and it's like I remember actually um I I was out with some friends this big group of us but the bill ended up being seven hundred dollars. And then I was trying to do the math on the tip, and I, I like I, I think I was like, okay, well, like what's fifteen percent of seven hundred dollars? And I was like, no, that can't be right, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, and I was like, 
105? No. Yeah. There's no way it's a hundred dollars extra uh-huh. for tip. Uh-huh. And, but it was. Yeah. And, and that's it, like, and like, and you have to leave it. Yeah. You know? That's just the way it is. Yeah. I mean, anyone that's been to Vegas knows the pain, you know, right? Anyone that's got like a table at a club or gone to a club and got a few drinks, you know, especially if you've like celebrated out there and got a table for like a wedding or a birthday or something. I mean, you know, it hurts. I mean, that tip really hurts. It's crazy because it's like you have the bill for 700. And then you look at the, you look under it and it says eighty dollars for tax and mm-hmm. you're like oh fuck that's mm-hmm. a lot yeah I mean over in Thailand you can live here really comfortably for a month yeah. I mean so is it worth it I mean I I've done this too you know me and me and my homies back in the day we used to you know go clubbing and you know we'd get tables I mean it'd, it'd be easy for us to get tables because there's like you know you know fifteen of us and so everyone pitched in like a hundred bucks you know we can you know get a fifteen hundred dollar two thousand dollar table. But if you just think about like, you know, if you spend a thousand dollars and and a night, I mean, or two thousand dollars in, in one night, and that can buy you two months of like really comfortable living in Thailand. I mean, it's just not worth it. Looking back, and I kind of, you know, I had to do it because I was young, but I, you know, it wasn't the smartest move in the world. You know, you know, that's an interesting point I bring up. Well, first is that we all think we have to do it because that's just what everyone else is doing. Yep. If we go out with friends mm-hmm. and we. Don't do it, or we, you know, say no, no, no. Like, let's not do that. Let's not, you know, spend this. Yeah, you're kind of like outcast. Yeah, because it's whack. Yeah, <laughs> who who wants to hang with some guy that goes, oh, I don't want to do that. You can't do that. You know, that's kind of whack. So I used to do that. Yeah, you know, I used to go out, and you know, to some some of you listening, you might think we're idiots, but we and we were. <laughs> but this was kind of like the life in yeah. LA. It's it's normal on a weekend to chip in a hundred dollars each. Oh yeah. Oh. Oh, all day, man. More, but yeah, super easy. It's just a normal thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. Like, and it's stupid. Yeah, it's stupid. Like, like we don't, you don't get anything out of it. No. Like you have a hungover, you know, hangover the next day, mm-hmm. and but you're like, well, this is it. This is the only thing there is to do. We worked hard all week, right? You know, you want to blow some steam off with your friends. Yeah, yeah. And we want to go out. Right? We got to, you know, do something. Right. And this, that's it. That's yeah. what you do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you think about, I mean, when I think about how much money I've blown doing stupid stuff like that, you know, I mean, I mean, if that was invested over the course of 10 years with compounding, I mean, that could have been a lot of money, man. And, and in a way, I, you know, I understand doing that because you got to have a social life too, man. You got to, you got to kick with your homies and stuff. And so you, you got to do some of that. That's just part of the expense, but you know, in my older age, I mean, I, I wish I did less of it. You know what? And we got off lucky because we happened. I mean, I think I was lucky because I was cheap and I left early. <laughs> I think you're lucky because you had a business, you know, and you're, you know, and you're working hard making money. Yeah, yeah. I have friends who are in credit card debt still today from just, you know, being stupid. Yeah. In their twenties and thirties. Yeah. And it's hard to catch up. Yeah, it's terrifying, man. I mean, it's terrifying that you can have a hundred dollars worth of debt and get twenty percent interest, and at the end of the year, you owe one twenty. It's just freaking nuts, and that happens all the time, even with student debts. I mean, the first thing is is like get out of debt. If you're in debt, man, I mean, that's if if you've got like a a, a bad interest rate, you got to get out of that first. I mean, that's that's rule number one, I think. Yeah, if anyone is in credit card debt right now, I'd recommend a book by Dave Ramsey. I don't really call it, he calls it something debt makeover or something. But uh, I had a friend Anastasia. She's been on the podcast. Um, I don't remember which episode, but basically she had like 
I want to say 40 grand or something in, in debt. And she just paid it off following that, that method. And she started an online business. Now I think she's living, I thought what she's living, but the last time we hung out was on the Canary Islands and wow. like, she's living a great life now. Yeah. Well, you, well, with David, I know David Ramsey, he's like, I don't know him that well, but from what I, what I hear, I think he's like allergic to debt. Like he hates debt. Now there is, uh, there is strategic use of debt. What I'm talking about is like, if you're just going to a bar or eating out or kind of using that money in a way that doesn't have any sort of velocity, then yeah, I think, but you know, real estate debt, all this stuff, that's a little different and that's a whole different conversation. But there is, um, after doing real estate, uh, there is amazing power because initially I was really allergic to debt and I hated it too. And it took me a long time to realize that there is this sort of strategic use of debt and like there is a good way to do that, but that is not going out to a bar and buying beers. That That's a different type of debt. This is totally, totally different. So don't confuse the two. Like going to Macy's and buying a bunch of jeans, that's not the type of debt I'm talking about. That is bad debt, not good debt. Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree. I think like leveraging yeah. you know, money to invest right. is one thing. I don't necessarily like going that route just because I'm a bit more conservative. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also see like, you know, if I was going to buy real estate as investment property, I probably wouldn't want, you know, to put a million dollars in cash. I, I don't have a million dollars in cash to put it down. Right. But if I can put 20% of that, put mm-hmm. 200 grand in, mm-hmm. leverage it, have a, a million dollar property cash flow me money. Yep. That is an investment. Absolutely. Going out and, you know, going to Vegas. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and unfortunately, you know, we like going to Vegas. It's fun. Right. You know, the Nomad Summit, it was just in Vegas because it's fun. Right. But I don't recommend to anybody to put a trip or a weekend on, you know, on a credit card, not knowing how to pay it off. Yeah. And especially not like put your life on a credit card. Uh, I just found the episode, it was 181. And is actually going from seventy thousand dollars in debt to making ten grand a month. So she basically, you know, started an online business. She followed Dave Ramsey. She cut out seventy grand in debt. Wow! And then she, when I, when we were hanging out, she was making ten grand a month from you know working online while you know being living debt free and living cheaper. So right. that's that's the ultimate switch. Yeah, absolutely. When like. You know, when we say debt free, it means no BS debt. If you're carrying like a mortgage that's cash flowing or something, that's a totally different. I mean, really, it's kind of a disservice. There should, in the English language, there should be a different word for that sort of debt because that is not the same debt. And so, you know, looking back, you know, for me, for example, looking back, you know, when I started investing in real estate, um, had I gone into deeper debt and leveraged um, more, it would have been more beneficial today. Um, and that's kind of why I kind of learned that debt is not necessarily bad. But again, there is a big difference between the two. Yeah. Or you could also be, you know, fucked basically. I have a really smart friend. Yeah. He invested, you know, in a bunch of rental properties. And when the kind of debt crisis came in, oh. you know, 2008, 2009, yep. mm-hmm. he, he had done everything right. He actually had 20% down on everything. So he didn't over leverage himself. Okay. Okay. You know, but he just, Got started, caught. Yeah, he just caught caught up because he had too much mm-hmm. leverage. Right, and That's he true. was, you know, he had over a million dollars worth of, of properties, and he lost all of them because Damn. it just he was it, it just you know things things changed. They weren't worth as much anymore. Interest right. rates changed. You know, people you know just didn't have the money. You know, like they weren't lending anymore. They weren't like renewing mm-hmm. you know leases, and 
it just you get you get screwed as well. Yeah, so. yeah, absolutely. That that can absolutely happen, and you know that might happen again. I mean, everyone, everything I read right now, there's a credit bubble going on. I mean, there's an everything bubble, right? The Fed and QE and all this stuff, and so asset asset inflation is, you know, craziness right now. I look at the stock market, and you know, everything is at all time highs, including real estate. You know, L.A. housing bubble, it, the current price for a home is more expensive than the peak in 2007, and real estate is at all time high. It smells a little fishy to me because a healthy stock market means – or a healthy real estate market is that people are making money and with real money, they're bidding up the prices. But that's not really happening. It's more funny money and that's kind of what happened in 07. And so you know, really the economy around now is quote unquote on life support with quantitative easing and that's like a whole different topic. But you know, there is kind of funny money in everything right now and so I don't believe that this is a healthy market. A healthy market is where, are you doing better than you were 10 years ago? Am I? If everyone is doing really, really great and we're bidding up the prices for everything, that's a healthy market. But I don't believe that's the case. I think that people aren't doing that great since 2007 or eight. They might be doing slightly better, but it's not like everyone's making a lot of money. So this sort of asset inflation that's happening right now seems, it smells like funny money to me. And so that could happen again. Yeah, this whole crash could happen again. I actually feel something really similar. A lot of it kind of is just in, intuition almost yep, me too the last time i was this time you know just a month ago i was back in the u.s and the way that prices were for things i, I had noticed that people got so used to having high, having high prices and prices going up so often that menus even on the side of a food truck stopped having prices <sighs> yeah because they had to change it so often they just like didn't have prices and people would order things not asking what the price was and I thought, this is ridiculous. Yeah, it's bubble behavior. It's bubble behavior. That that's yeah. exactly what it is. And yep. I'm like, I'm in front of the um the courthouse uh in Vegas, not because, you know, I was in court, <laughs> but I just happened to be walking by there and there's a food truck. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, ordering a breakfast burrito. I'm like, oh, how much is the breakfast burrito? And she's like, Oh, oh, nobody's asked her in a while, so she had to like tell me. And I'm like, what well, like I was like how do you have a food truck in front of you know in front of a courthouse? And these are like low budget people. You have people getting on probation. You have people like you know just like they're not rich people, right? right? And the fact that none of them even bother asking for the price, they just order, and then they're just like, all right, well, you know, I'll take it up the ass, whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, that is not normal. Yeah, that yeah, that is that is not normal. So I mean, that's like you know, I, I could be wrong. I, you know, I could be wrong, but that is my intuition that. Something is kind of fishy. And remember that the economy is still on quantitative easing. So the economy is still on Fed injected money. So it's, you know, a healthy economy should not have any emergency money flooded into it, but there currently still is. So it's not a healthy economy. Yeah. Or like the fact that a, you know, medium house, just like not even a nice house, like a starter home is a million dollars all day. Like who, like who in the right mind thinks it's okay for a starter house. A starter house is intended for someone right out of college, you know, first job, mm-hmm. right, making what, 36 grand a year, right, right. to buy and live in mm-hmm. and like then trade up, right. like for a million dollars. Like has anyone ne- never done the math on how long it's going to take to pay off a million dollar mortgage yep. making 30 grand, 6 grand a year? It's yep. it just like it's not possible. Yep. I remember saying this in the 07. Okay. So I screwed up. I remember Thinking it was a bubble in 06, 05, 07. I actually thought it was a bubble for a long time. When the crash happened, I remember my uncle at the time was telling me, you should buy a house. And I 
was overconfident and I'm like, no. I told him this is the, the the market the housing market just crashed. It was actually he was right, I was wrong, but the housing market just crashed. And I was like, people aren't that dumb. They're not like a lot of people lost their homes. They're not that stupid. It's not gonna reinflate again. It fucking reinflated again. And like I did I was like, you know, people lost their homes. Like on the news, people are like, Oh, we lost our homes, you have no place to live. I'm like, people aren't gonna reinflate this bubble, they're not gonna buy back in and do this shit all over again. And that's exactly what they did. And I had I was wrong. I should have bought. I should have bought then. But I didn't. I did end up buying later on, but I, I did miss out on a lot of appreciation because I was like, the housing market crashed. This is the native state. This is where it should be. It's not going to go anywhere anytime soon because all these people lost their homes. People aren't that stupid. They're not going to do it. And they did it. And they did it quick. They did it with the quickness. Yeah. And you know what? I don't even want to say people are stupid. I think one of these is people are in – people kind of do what other people do. And especially when you're living in a in – a, you know, in a society where, like, it just becomes normal. It's like, oh, this is normal life. So this, like, why question it? Everyone else is doing it. This is how it is. And yeah. people end up doing stupid things. Yeah, I guess that I guess that's the definition of the bubble behavior, right? I mean, everyone talks about the tulip crisis that happened a long time ago in Holland. And that's, like, the reference that all, all economists relate to, you know, the tulip crisis. But I don't know. I mean, nobody knows. I could be totally wrong. And, like, we could be just doing great. But it just – it smells weird to me. Yeah. Well, I think one of the, the best things about living in a cheap place like Thailand or having being location independent, having freedom, having less stuff is – those things don't really affect us that much. I remember when 2009 hit, there was a huge, you know, crisis, right? Yeah. I was living on a small island in Thailand, in Koh Tao. <laughs> that, that's cool. I was living in a hut, on a bamboo hut for, I think, like, maybe, I don't know, less than two, like, let's say 200 bucks a month or something, right? And it didn't affect me. Yeah, that's crazy. I, like, I didn't even pay attention to it. Wow. And I remember, like, people were freaking out talking about it. And I was just like, what are you guys even talking about? What's happening? Yeah. And I wonder, not even if, but when that happens again, like either one or two things are going to happen. One is I'm just going to lay low in living the cheap, comfortable life somewhere and just like, you know, not spend anything stupid money. Maybe, maybe I won't make as much money those years, Mm -hmm. but I'll just kind of relax. Mm -hmm. Or maybe I'll have enough in savings to be like, all right, let's swoop up some deals. Yeah, it's funny that you, it's funny that you mentioned that because in doing our calculation for moving to Thailand, because we didn't just pick up and move. Like I, I don't roll like that. Like we sit down and we ran numbers and everything, and you know we, you know we've been in Thailand for almost a month now, so we just left. And you know I was talking to my girlfriend. I'm like, look, babe, everything's at all time highs right now. The market's at all time highs. Real estate's at all time highs. It's kind of an in, uninvestable market right now. Anyways, if you're gonna buy anything, stock, real estate, you're gonna buy it expensive, and so. I'm like, there is no value to being here in the United States right now. If anything, we can duck out to Thailand for a year, hang out, and I'm going to watch America while I'm here. If if it burns down, I'm coming back to buy. That's that's my mentality. And the crazy shit is, is that by living in Thailand for a year and saving the money that we're saving every month, I can earn interest on that money. So when we ran the numbers, we figured out that we could come to Thailand, we could save money. Live here for a year, unlimited, buying, doing whatever we wanted. And when we came back to the States, we would have more money than if we had just stayed in the States. And so that was kind of the grind, right? I'm like, look, let's, let's let this bubble ride itself out. Hopefully in a year something happens. Maybe, maybe not, but 
there's no value in being here for a year because everything I'm doing is just going to be expensive. I'm not going to be saving any money. If we move to Thailand, we can be racking money. We can be earning interest on that money. And then if something burns down or something bad happens, we can come back and capitalize on that opportunity. And if it doesn't, you enjoyed a great exactly. year of being in Thailand. We lose nothing. And if, and if it doesn't happen, we stayed in Thailand. We enjoyed a great year and we have more money than if we had stayed in the States. It was a, a, a impossible to lose. I'm curious about some of those calculations. Like, what were you spending for rent back in LA? Like, what were the what were some of those numbers? So, you know, we, you know, we had a great deal. We lived in a kind of expensive part of town, Sherman Oaks. It was, you know, just over the hill from UCLA, and you know, our unit was leasing for like, you know, three thousand a month. We were, I had been in that unit for ten years, and so we were paying like twenty three hundred a month for that unit. So we're paying twenty three hundred on that, um, and our our eat out cost was really expensive just because we were spending a lot of money and then our grocery cost was expensive just and we don't I mean I never really shopped at Whole Foods like one time I did because I was really sick and I walked to Whole Foods to get some coconut water and like a bowl of soup and I never did that again because my bill was like $30 and I never did that again so we just shopped at like you know normal shopping you know we you know we, we were pretty conservative we you know we didn't spend but going out to dinner with friends Every Friday night, me and some friends would meet up. We go have sushi. We go have some dentai fung or whatever. Eat some good food, and you know that'd be you know forty, fifty bucks a head. We go out you know for a drink once a month, you know. And so, yeah, it, it still added up. You know, car insurance and having a car and gasoline and all that stuff. Electric bill, internet. You know, our internet bill. You know, we had internet, HBO, Netflix, uh, cable TV, um, fast internet because I like to play StarCraft. And so, you know, it was like. 150, 180 bucks a month. Oh my god! Yeah. And how many uh, megabytes up and down did you have? Uh, I don't. I don't remember. I just. I was like, give me like the second fastest speed. Okay. And so that's what I did. And then I just. So I have super fast internet here. Hundred megs down. Thirty megs up. Uh, no, forty megs up. It's I think seventeen dollars a month. Yeah. No contract. <laughs> yeah, we were banned that. Yeah, we were in contract too. So my cell phone here. I have I think like eight gigs of four G. I think it's fifteen bucks a month. No contract. Wow. What were you paying back home? Um, so, yeah, it's funny. So I know our HBO cost was like 35 or $40 a month just for HBO. Um, Netflix was about like 10 bucks or 12 or whatever it was. Um, and yeah, uh, like water and power was up there too. It wasn't too bad actually. Our, our unit wasn't very big. It was like 900 square feet. So yeah. it wasn't too big. That wasn't how how too much bad. was that then? Uh, I'd say during the summer months for our unit, maybe like, 200 bucks for for two months or maybe 250 for two months in the summer months and then maybe like a hundred under 100 a month maybe okay. to 100 so. yeah, but like this is adding up right yeah and so you know like in reality we like, probably spent like i don't know car insurance health because again i'm an entrepreneur so we have to buy my own health like my health insurance is like 350 a month it adds up cell phone our cell phones you know i have like an unlimited plan because i live off my phone so that's not cheap either i don't really know what it is it's probably like 80 to 100 bucks a month you know, easily eating out and everything. I'd say, you know, my credit card bills could, well, it's hard to say because, you know, I, I do mix them up with like attorneys and stuff, but you know, you could say you'd spend an easy like 3000 to 3500 a month just on kind of ancillary expenses, meaning food, eating out, all that wow. stuff. Yeah. And that's not, that's not including 2300 for yeah, rent, yeah. which was a good deal compared to. Yeah. Yeah. It was a good deal because every time they raise their rent, I was like, fuck this place. We're leaving. I go on Craigslist. And look down the street and see the same unit going for three thousand. I'm like, okay, we're, we're staying. staying. <laughs> yeah, and then I'm sure, like, what? Do you have a car payment or gas? Uh, yeah, yeah, we had, uh, yeah, gas. Uh, I didn't have a car payment. Okay. Maintenance had a German car, and that was expensive. And um, so yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it, it adds up. 
It's know? crazy, right? Because it's like it's almost normal to spend yeah four grand, mm-hmm. five grand a month, yeah, especially as a couple. Mm-hmm. And what I mean, do you? That, yeah, yeah I, I guess that is for a couple, but not really. But that's still. primarily my expense because I, I, you know. I, you know, me and my girlfriend would eat up, but then that that bill also includes me eating out on my own because yeah. she goes to work, and I, you know. And then here, like, what are you paying for rent? Uh, we are paying about sixteen thousand five hundred baht a month, and we're moving to a place which is considered really, really expensive for the locals. Like, there are essentially no locals in the building that we're moving to, but that's twenty thousand baht a month, which I don't know what that works out to. It's like six hundred bucks. About six hundred bucks for yeah. Me and my girlfriend, we split it. It's like three hundred. And this is now you can see like me and my girlfriend. Like if we got okay, it's uh, it's got like a beautiful pool. It's a brand new building, and we're paying six hundred. Me and my girlfriend split. We're paying three hundred each. Now you can see how living in Thailand for a year, we can end up with more money than if we had stayed in America because you just heard what our rough expenses were for the month. Well, okay, all right. So here, here's a question that everyone has is. Like let's say, let's say just your apartment, right? Is it? Do you feel like it's a sacrifice coming here and living in that apartment versus your old apartment, or do you think there's like benefits, like better location, like you know, did you have a pool, your old one, like what, like how do you compare the two okay. apartments? Yeah, that's okay. So the apartment we're moving to, or even the apartment we're we're living at here in Chiang Mai, and the apartment we're moving to, it's probably equivalent to like a. a Thirty-five to four thousand dollar apartment in downtown LA, and I'm comparing the two because we're in Nimon, which is like the fanciest area in Chiang Mai, and it's kind of equivalent to like an expensive place in LA, which would be like downtown LA or the West Side. And so, you know, this building with you know guard gated security, water delivery service, full amenities, pool, rooftop stuff, um, all that stuff would you know easily cost you thirty-five hundred to four thousand, depending on how upscale you wanted to go. So. It's like it's like. Do you feel like you're downgrading? Hell your life? no, no. We're actually upgrading our life. Like our quality of living has increased, and even forget all the physical um, increases in quality of life. The mental, um, the mental burden of you know not bearing the mental burden of expenses, where things kind of almost become like monopoly money. That is a very big relief. Like not. Having these crushing, you know, bills, knowing that we can eat out two people for three dollars to five dollars, knowing we can eat out at every single meal and not really even look at the bill and not really worry, just order. Imagine like, you know, living where you are and ordering exactly everything that you wanted and living and living exactly where you wanted, not where you live now. Like if you want to live in a high rise, which is what we're doing, living, you know, in a, in a building with guard gated security and a rooftop pool. And cabanas and eating out all the time. Imagine having that life and not worrying about the money. That's essentially what it is for us right now. It just happens to be in Thailand, which I like because I even said if I would have won the lottery, um, I would still move to Thailand, Chiang Mai, because it's just a different experience, anyways, right? And aren't you tired of like going to Starbucks every day? Like, how many times can you do that a day? You know? Yeah, I like it. So, stop going to Starbucks in your home country. Come to a Great local coffee shop here. Yeah, man. Coffee's amazing out here, yeah, actually. It is. It is amazing. It's great. And you know? the food is great and the quality of living is there. And yeah, it's uh, it's definitely been a good move. I'm actually – it's funny because coming here, I'm actually like trying to make moves now to move out of LA permanently <laughs> after after seeing this sort of thing. And something that was really amazing too is we went to a comedy night a few nights ago that Johnny was performing at. And it seems that a lot of people are really well-traveled here. It's really weird because – you know, when I'm, you know, when I, when I was at that comic show, people were like, oh, I was in like China for three months and I moved here. And it's a very different sort of community. It's a transient community. And 
Um, because of that, I feel like they're really kind of worldly and educated and view the world in a very different light. And it's a very different group of people. And, you know, back in LA, a lot of my friends were chasing careers and stuff. So it's just a different flavor of people. And it's amazing that in LA, they were in my circle. It didn't really exist, but here they're everywhere. You know, it's like just knowing where to go. And you can tap into this like huge network of people that kind of have a similar mindset and lifestyle is, is, is very interesting. And it might not be for you, but it's, it's worth giving a shot. Yeah, I love it. Well, I'm glad you gave it a shot. I'm glad you reached out. Absolutely. Glad you're uh, out here and on the podcast. I think it's uh, really valuable for people to listen to, you know, what it what it's like kind of in the, the beginning to make those big moves. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm sure it wasn't easy to sell all your stuff and make that leap, but so yeah, far, yeah. so no, good? Yeah, it, it took work. Um, and it's it's funny because doing it is so stressful and you're so worried and you're wondering if you made the wrong decision. And we've been here for a month now and looking back – those worries seem really ridiculous. And it's just yeah. very interesting. What, what were some of those worries? You know, like, um, is this really the right move? Um, taking a, a year off work or for my girlfriend who has a career, it's like, you know, will I have a job when we come back? Is this worth the sacrifice? She got lucky and she got a sabbatical. So she has a job when she gets back. But um, is this just like, are we going to be wasting a year? Um, is this kind of a foolish move? And it was those sort of issues. And then there's also like the physical issues of actually just selling stuff or getting rid of stuff. And, you know, I, I don't like getting rid of a lot of stuff because, you know, we spent good money on it and it's, it's hard to see it go when you spend good money on it. So the physical act of just like, you know, you know, throwing away your clothes, you know, that have no value anymore. And it's just like, oh man, it sucks. And so there are a lot of these stresses. Um, but I think the biggest thing was, was, was this the right move? Um, and it, here, I mean, it's, it's, it's so easy to look back and know the answer, but going forwards, it's very difficult because really all the hard work is right at that point. Yeah. Leaving is where all the hard work is. Once you're here and if you've got a little bit of money, it, it, it gets easier. Like, I mean, it, it gets to a point. And another thing that we're worried about is like, if you come here, we well, get trapped here, you know, like we just like love this lifestyle. But I mean, if I do end up staying here, or if I do end up coming back, it won't be because I'm trapped. It's because it, it was a great move and I want to do it again. That's why I'd be I like here. It. And did you get any pushback at all from your like family or your friends? No, you know, I don't, I don't know. I mean, we went to Bangkok. The, the way we discovered this place, we ended up in Bangkok in December, and that's when I was like, "Oh my god, this place is like amazing!" And um, I told them about it, and so I, I don't know if they gave pushback just because I was when I got back in January, I was like, "Man, Bangkok is amazing. It's so cheap. Like things are just great out there. You have access to all the same services. You know, any sort of perception that where the quality of life that you're getting is not as good in Asia is." racism like that i mean i joke with my friends about it like oh like you go to a thai doctor like i haven't been to a thai doctor but from what i hear and what i've seen so far the healthcare is the same right and if anything it's better they have yeah. more, they have more time to spend with you mm -hmm. i've seen some really amazing like videos about the healthcare and people are like oh you can go live in huts we come here man they got like 4k or 4d theaters where they serve like they have waiters here they serve you the quality like to you know people have this kind of misconception that the quality of life is lower but to be honest, that shit is just racist, bro. Because <laughs> it's not like, why would I, you know, why would I do that? I mean, I, I have the ability to not like, I don't need to reduce my quality of life, but I'm here anyways, right? That, that says something, you know. I like it. Why would I? Why would I move here to like worsen? Like what? Like that makes no sense, yeah. you know. I mean, but I actually like the fact that if we really wanted to bootstrap and we wanted to live on six hundred dollars a month and live in like. A really basic apartment. Oh man, it's possible. Oh, all day. Yeah, it's all day. Like you know, you know, you know. There were worries about you know 
you know, my girlfriend was a little worried about money and, you know, she's like essentially taking a sabbatical so she's not earning an income. And we got here and, you know, she was like, we're like, I'm like, babe, if you want, we can stay in like a, you know, like a bootstrappy place, a place that's like a little bit more bare, but it's cheaper. And like, you know, in the blink of an eye, she ended up scaling up to like basically the nicest thing you could buy here. Or the because nicest you can. Thing. Yeah. And it's still cheap. Right. Because it's like, you know, it's – um. Uh, what's the word for it? Economies, it's basically economies of scale, right? Like you could bootstrap and, you know, you could pay, you know, $300 for a room. But if you can spend six, you can have a much higher quality of life. So it just, it depends on what you're going for. If you want to bootstrap, that's cool. Like there's definitely a time and place for that. But for incrementally more money, you can just live very, very comfortably. So it's like, what's to you? Is $300 worth it to save to live in luxury versus living kind of more bare bones? So it's really up to you on how you want to live your life. But for us, it was like, I mean, 300 bucks, we'd blow that on like, you know, a, a meal or two in LA. So of course, we're going to choose like a much nicer place for that $300. So it's kind of economies of scale type thing, you know? Nice. I'm, well, I'm super curious to follow up in a year and see if you're, you know, if, what you're thinking? If you're, if you, if you thought, oh man, that was a complete waste, or that was the best move of my life, or if you're still here, wh- what do you? I know it's only been uh, what a few weeks or a month. Yeah. But month. what do you, what do you think you're gonna predict? Uh, I, I would place a heavy bet on the fact that I wouldn't regret it. Like I, I mean, I don't understand how. I really don't like. The longer we're here, again, economy is The longer we're here, the more money we save. So if we stayed for like a year, you know, again. We'd have more money than if we had lived in the States. And I've had a lot of already amazing experiences. I met Johnny. That was pretty cool. Meeting like a lot of new people. And it's kind of impacted my worldview on things and seeing that there, there are lots of worlds that exist right in front of our eyes, but we just have to know where to look. And so it's just, you know, a lot of life lessons. And it's definitely considering that I'm essentially not paying anything for this experience because when I come back, I'll have more money than when I left. Um, it's, it's, there's there's no loss that I foresee so far. I love it. So I hope to see all of you guys out here. Come out to the next Nomad Summit. It's going to be January 19th, 2019. You can get early bird tickets at nomadsummit.com. Get your ticket and make it a plan to say, I'm going to be in Chiang Mai in January no matter what. I'm going to make it happen. Come meet you know all these cool people. And you know who knows? You might come out here and love it and then go back with more money than you would have had. <laughs> so really it's a win-win situation. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's definitely worth to come out. Even if, like, you know, if you don't have a lot of money, just come out and bootstrap it. Just get a taste of it. Just come for like a month. If you don't like it, that Starbucks will be there at that corner. Yeah, I promise. All right. See you guys next week. Thanks so much and stay bossy. All right, bosses. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. It was super fun to talk about and to be back in Chiang Mai. Uh, I want to, Give a quick shout out and thank you again to our sponsor, HiPath. If you guys haven't checked them out, I highly encourage traveling with carry-on luggage only as much as possible. So if you're traveling around a lot. So check out the unique design. It's kind of cool. It's a two-in-one. You can roll it. You can carry it. And it's on Amazon.com. Just search for H-Y-P-A-T-H. And you can use the coupon code JohnnyFD when checking out. Also want to give a big thank you to everyone who's been leaving these great reviews of the podcast on iTunes and everywhere else. It really helps. I know it's kind of a pain in the butt to leave a review on iTunes, but I promise you it helps so much. It helps more people reach this podcast, more people you know, become digital nomads because of the show and for you sharing it with your friends and for rating it so it just you know pops up higher in the rankings. Uh, this week, I want to say thank you to Jangle Rooster. 
he says, perfect mix of business and travel, five stars. Johnny is great with his authenticity and transparency, very motivating and informative. If you're looking for insight into running online businesses, working remotely, and traveling the world, I listen to at least one episode per day while trying to catch up on all the old episodes. So thanks again, and I'll see all of you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Travel Like a Boss podcast. If you want to hear more, including the bonus, how to choose the perfect niche episode, join our mailing list at travellikeabosspodcast.com. See you next week. And remember, if you want to travel like a boss, you need to be your own boss. So start your online business today and start living the lifestyle you've always dreamed of.